When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Explores. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. It's the wee hours of the morning, the light painting the walls of your bedroom pink and golden. You look down at the newborn baby in your arms, the child you just brought into the world despite the dangers. You know already that you would do anything to protect him, but how far will you go to ensure his future greatness? Would you do anything it takes, even if that means violence? Would you lie? Would you steal? Would you kill? Strategic, passionate, ruthless, and determined, this ancient Greek queen went to epic lengths to ensure her son Alex ended up on his throne. In doing so, she helped make him worthy of his title, Alexander the Great. Alexander accomplished a lot all on his own, but there's no doubt that he got a lot of help from his mama. Despite what some people believed about women being meek and quiet, Olympias was one of the most influential people in his life. She was the ultimate momager, shaping his view of himself and the world, maneuvering through the complexities of a cutthroat court to ensure her son became a conqueror, and in turn becoming one of the most powerful women in the ancient Greek world. But she wasn't the only strong-willed woman in Alex's orbit. There were others. A sister who broke hearts and helped rule a kingdom. A half-sister and her daughter, who led armies and killed queens. Even an Amazon who traveled quite a long way to demand some connubial communion with him in his tent. In this episode, let's dive into the lives and times of the women who helped shape Alexander's greatness and accomplished a whole lot of their own along the way. Get ready to enter the royal court at Macedonia. We'll face assassinations, intrigue, a little snake worship, warrior women, and an epic battle for an empire that would put Game of Thrones to shame. Grab your dagger, a little poison, a silver tongue, and your best poker face. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My pirate queens, Kayla, Gaia, Mikkel, Jackie, Emily, Wendy, Jessica B., and Anna. My lady presidents, Ellie, Pamela, Dana, Elizabeth M., Nancy, Claire S., Louisa, Meg, Lauren, Elizabeth G., Paul, 
Karen R., Edie, Jessica S., Caitlin, Sasha, Casey, Lori, Claire K., Audrey, Caroline, Amy, Brendan, Lindsay, Belinda, Eve, Debbie, Cassie, Nicole, Jordan, Kat, Larissa, and Townsend. And here's to the gods and goddesses divine who are contributing more each month than I've asked for. Jackie C., Karen C., Alexis, and Avery. Becoming a patron of the show starting at just $1 a month really helps keep it going. And it gives you exclusive access to over five hours of bonus content and growing. You can also make a one-time donation. Just go over to Patreon and look up the Explores. start, of course, with Olympias. She'll be our main player, as she's the one we know the most about. Before she becomes the dynamic queen known as Olympias, she's born sometime around 375 BCE under a very different name entirely. Like a proper diva, she's going to take four different monikers during her lifetime, and we're not exactly sure which one she's born with. Elizabeth Carney, author of Olympias, mother of Alexander the Great, thinks she's born as Polyxena, a Trojan name that fits right in with the rest of her family. At some point, she'll take on the name Myrtale, a name she probably chooses herself as part of a religious ritual. Later, she'll become Olympias, and even later, Stratonice, which means something like victory in military matters, a new name for every new stage of her life. For now, we'll call her Polyxena. Her dad is Neoptolemus, the king of Molossia, a region in Epirus southwest of Macedonia. We have no idea who her mother was, because sometimes history sucks at preserving women's stories. Too bad she didn't poison someone important. She grows up with a sister, Troas, a brother, Alexander, and a meddlesome uncle we'll meet momentarily. Her family has powerful political pull and a great origin story. They come from divine stock, or so everyone likes to tell her. They claim they're related to Melossia, the son of Trojan wife Andromache and Neoptolemus. A little background on who they are and why they matter. During the Trojan War, Andromache was married to the mighty Trojan warrior Hector. But when he died, killed by godlike Achilles, everything went downhill for her from there. After Achilles died, his son Neoptolemus showed up to win his own slice of glory. This he did by killing Troy's king, Priam, and dashing Hector's son against some rocks to ensure the dynasty could never rise again. And because ancient history is all about living war prizes, he takes Andromache captive as his slave. So, to be clear, they're claiming to be descendants of a baby killer who forced himself on the mother of the child he murdered. Sort of a weird claim to fame, but maybe that's just me. They also claim to be descended from Hellenus, another son of Trojan King Priam. So on one side there's a mythic hero, and on another a gilded king. Polyxena's family calls themselves the Eosids, and this gilded family tree is widely known throughout the Greek world. It influences the way that others see her family, but it also shapes how she sees herself. 
as a heroine of epic proportions. And as we'll see, many of the elements of that whole Trojan War saga are going to find a way into her storyline. We know next to nothing about her childhood, but we can create a little framework around her and make some educated guesses about what her life is like. First, let's talk about Molossia, because while it's still part of Greece, it's very different to the southern cities. Our friends in Athens barely consider it Greek at all. It's a mountainous region. Instead of olive trees and warm breezes, we're talking deep forests, hefty snows that keep outsiders away all winter, and gushing streams and bursting foliage when snow melts in spring. Wild, green, and isolated, this is the landscape of Polyxena's childhood. The southern Greek writers who give us much of this story see Molossia as something of a barbarian backwater. It's run by a monarchy, for Zeus's sake, and one where kings marry more than one wife. And it's far from cohesive. Epirus is distinctly non-urban, ruled by tribal clans that bear some resemblance to Scotland's Highland clans, warish and often at odds with each other, and their monarchies are unstable at best. Though the Eosids rule over Molossia, the governmental structure ensures they don't exercise absolute power. Every year, after sacrificing to Zeus Arius, the king has to promise that he'll serve according to the law and not just his whims, and so he can never lean back in that throne and get overly comfortable. Plus, they may not be operating under primogeniture, the idea that the kingship passes from father to oldest son by default, so their lofty lineage is not a guarantee. Staying in power depends very much on how savvy you are and how good you are at warring, and is subject always to the winds of popular opinion. The Molossians are known to kick kings out just to invite them back, and they aren't afraid to force them to rule jointly with someone. And thus when Polyxena's uncle, a guy named Erebus, elbows his way in and makes his brother share the spotlight, there isn't much her dear old dad can do. As northern buffer states, both Molossia and Macedonia are constantly dealing with threats from places like Illyria, where some of the warrior women we've talked about like to roam. Living with the constant threat of violence amid war-minded people with an unstable monarchy makes life for any royal somewhat tenuous. But it also probably gives Polyxena an early education in power, how to win it, how to hold it, and what it feels like to lose it. I imagine it ingrains a burning desire to grab as much of it as she can. The good news is that women in Epirus seem to enjoy more freedom than their southern counterparts. In Molossia, women can own property, act as guardians for minors, and pass their citizenship on to their children. They have no guardians themselves, at least not once they're considered adults. And given that Olympias corresponds with many political leaders later, we can assume she learns to read and write. I like to imagine her perched in a palace window overlooking snowy mountains, reading the Iliad for the 14th time and wishing Achilles didn't die in the end. At some point, her father passes away, leaving her uncle in sole control of Molossia. At some point after that, he marries Polyxena's sister, Troas, probably to cement his royal lineage. Uncle-niece loving? Yep, we're into it. We have no way of knowing how Polyxena feels about any of this. Is her creepy uncle a controlling bastard she can't wait to get away from? Maybe. Is he someone she feels she can trust with her future? 
Who knows? But by the time she meets her future husband, Philip II of Macedonia, she is an orphan who has already dealt with her fair share of uncertainty and who knows how to look out for herself. Before we see Polyxena leave her Molossian life behind, let's meet the man she's about to marry. Born in 382, he is going to grow up to be a force to be reckoned with. Though there's plenty Molossia and Macedonia have in common, tribal structure, a love of warring, and a monarchy, there's also a lot that sets them apart. First, Philip II grows up in a court where military success means everything, even more so than in Molossia. Whereas the kings have checks and balances to keep them honest, in Macedonia the king has almost total power, and his dynasty, the Argiads, have a pretty loyal fan base. But that doesn't mean there isn't plenty of complicated family drama. If Macedonia is known for one thing, it's a bloody and violent monarchy. And the Argiad clan is no exception. Exile, murder, poisoning? All par for the course. So keep your hand over your wine glass. When we first meet Philip, he isn't king yet. His brother is on the throne, and he's busy getting a kingly education. Attending rowdy symposia, learning the ways of Warcraft, getting buff, and hanging out with his favorite heteroi. Does that word sound familiar? If you listen to It's All Greek to Me Part 2, it should. But while heteroi are female companions, Philip's heteroi are his closest bros. Also called the royal youths, these boys from powerful families are sent to court to be the equivalent of ladies-in-waiting. They're his posse at court, party and hunt with him, and form a key part of his warrior elite. It's likely they all grow up together, running around court, having each other's backs. Some of them likely become Philip's lovers, and this isn't considered odd in any way. As we learned in That Loosener of Limbs, where we talked about Sappho and sexuality, relations had between men in ancient Greece are fairly commonplace under certain conditions. Though it seems that in Macedonia in particular, the rules around such couplings are a lot more relaxed than way down south. Bisexuality is something no one's batting any eyes at. Philip, too, has male lovers throughout his teens, but also into adulthood, and they're often the same age as he is. This is something his son, Alexander, will take on board later, and sadly, it will help bring about Philip's demise. But right now he's still kicking, so let's talk about how Philip ends up king of Macedonia. At age 14, he's sent down south as a war hostage to Thebes. This isn't as bad as it sounds. He lives with a politician, who teaches him some of the shock tactics and battlefield maneuvers that will make him such a war savant later. He puts those skills to good use when, still a teen, his kingly brother puts him in command of some troops, and he slays. His eldest brother, Alexander II, is assassinated by his mother's boyfriend after maybe a year on the throne. Drama, drama, drama. His other brother, Perdiccas II, and his army fall in a massacre perpetrated by those wily Illyrians. And so, though he is third in line, Phil finds himself in the number one spot. Well, sort of. Three pretenders pop up in quick succession, saying they're the ones with the true claim to the throne, and two of them bring foreign backing with them. And so Macedonia hops from one tire fire to another, dangerously close to burning down. 
But young Philip is a force to be reckoned with. He manages to deal with all of these knuckleheads in just two years and fend off further Illyrian invasions. He's a conqueror by personality. If another country has a soft spot, he knows how to find it. If he sees the chance to exploit an alliance, he presses that button fast and hard. In other words, he's not a man to be messed with, but in Olympias, he's about to meet his match. We don't know exactly when they meet and marry, but most sources say they come together on the island of Samothrace, somewhere around 357. This remote island is nestled between Macedonia and Troy. It's a religious center for the twin gods Kaberi, or to some mystery deities called the Great Gods. They live at the heart of a mystery cult that's collecting quite a following. Pilgrims show up here to seek protection, or strengthen their odds in the afterlife. And like any good cult, everyone's eligible to be initiated, rich and poor, women and men, enslaved and free. Come on down! The Macedonians are big fans of this island and have given a lot of money to build up its temples. And though he may be getting up to some religious business, Philip has more than the gods on his mind. In between ritual cleansings, he meets a fiery redhead and, says Plutarch, he fell passionately in love with her. And although he was only a young adult and she was an orphan, he went right ahead and betrothed himself to her. This makes for a pretty story, but the whole notion that Phil sees a random girl in a hallway and is like, Break me off a piece of that, is pretty unlikely. He's probably on this island precisely because he wants to marry Polyxena, not because he loves her, but because he wants an alliance with Molossia. As we'll see, Phil is fond of marrying for political advantage. What king in this era isn't? The alliance may be initiated by Polyxena's uncle Erebus, who travels to the island with her. But it's likely to be Philip's idea. This island is his turf, after all. It certainly suits them both. As allied, they'll be much better able to fend off those pesky Illyrians. Does creepy uncle make sure to work out a good deal for his niece? Does he even think about what's going to happen to her in Macedonia? If there's one thing the Eosids feel very strongly about, it's their pride and honor. And so he may negotiate for giving her pride of place in Philip's court. One thing we can be very sure of, Polyxena probably has zero say in the matter. But that doesn't mean sparks aren't flying between these two intense, ambitious people. The sources tell us that their relationship is a passionate one from the very start. All we can hope is that this savvy, calculating soon-to-be queen is liking what she sees in young King Philip, and that she sees this union as the opportunity it is. This is a more prestigious match than any Eosid woman has made before her, and this is a chance for her to be an influential player. But don't get too excited for Polyxena. It's customary for Macedonian kings to marry more than one lady, and Philip will become quite famous for marrying many and often. In fact, he weds five women in the course of two years. As Athenaeus has it, Philip of the Macedonians did not lead women into war, but Philip always married in connection to a war. Polyxena will be his fifth wife, and she isn't going to be his last one which is going to lead to some serious drama. Does she care that she's becoming part of a small harem? Or is she just psyched to walk into a position of power with a man who seems a little bit obsessed with her? It's hard for us to say. But given who she's going to grow into, we can assume she's already looking for ways to make the most of it. 
One thing becomes clear from the get-go. This woman is not going to be pushed around or pushed aside. While at Samothrace, Polyxena and Philip are probably both initiated into the mystery cult. Engagement party plus cult ritual. Now that's killing two birds with one stone. We don't know a lot about what this initiation entails. Only that we're going to have to be okay with someone blindfolding us, then going about whatever our cult business is in front of a whole bunch of strangers. This is probably where she picks up the name Myrtale, although let's just call her Myrtle. The ceremony happens at night and seems to involve dancing, and we can hope some good wine, so a pretty hopping scene. After or amongst all this religious party time, 18-year-old Myrtle and 28-year-old Philip get married, and the drama's going to kick off pretty much right away. But before we dive into that flaming inferno, let's pause so I can tell you about the Explorese's exciting new venture. Do you love history? Are you into greeting cards and paper goods? Have you lamented how man-centric so much of history seems to be? If so, we should probably be friends. Also, you should check out the new Explores shop, where you'll find lady-centric timelines of bygone eras, female-focused maps, and greeting cards and art prints featuring badass women from history. Beautiful and educational, they're sure to make a great gift for a teacher, look awesome hanging over your daughter's desk, and thrill any lover of women's history. It's all printed on recycled paper in Australia, made by yours truly, and all proceeds go directly to supporting the show. So go search for the Explores on Etsy, or go to my website and click on Merchandise. Over in Macedonia, Myrtle finds herself living amongst strangers, trying to learn the ways of an entirely new country, embedded in a court full of more intrigue than your favorite murder mystery. It's more cosmopolitan than Molossia, to be sure, but her lineage is considered even fancier than her husband's, and that guy says he's related to Hercules. When she arrives, her husband's star is definitely on the rise, and he's moving the country from defensive mode to serious expansion. He's keen to get out there and win himself new territory, dead set on taking the Greek world by storm. Though Myrtle will become the most influential woman here, she probably doesn't start out that way. She's what we like to call a strong personality. She prompts intense reactions in those around her. You either love her or you hate her, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of in-between. She's a foreigner, too, which some people don't look on so favorably. In Greek culture, a woman stays forever closely tied to the family of her birth. If things don't work out with her husband or he dies, she's going to go straight back to her family of origin. So it makes sense that, especially with a family-proud woman like Myrtle, she brings strong feelings about her Molossian heritage with her. That can't be something that endears her to the Macedonian courtiers, but it's something she's going to drill into her soon-to-be son early on. There's also the possibility that Philip's mom, Eurydice, is still alive and serving as queen mother. Just as over in Egypt, the mother of the king wields a whole lot of influence, but she has some image issues. If scholars like Justin are to be believed, she's something of a she-devil. 
thirsty for the blood of her sons, committing adultery with her daughter's husband, and poisoning anyone who gets in her way. But given that we're dealing with ancient misogyny and that guy Justin's just salty, I'm willing to bet she's a fierce mother lion who works hard and without mercy to ensure her sons all get to rule. If she's alive when Olympias arrives, then she's probably serving as a great example of the do's and don'ts of Macedonian power grabbing. But it's unlikely she and Olympias are having many intimate teas. And then there are Philip's other wives. There's Audata, an Illyrian woman, who bears him a daughter named Kinane. We'll be back for her later. Phila, Nicosipolis and Philina, both from Thessaly, and Meda from Thrace, with a few more still to come. This isn't strictly a harem situation. Olympias is unlikely to be living in one house with these ladies, having family meetings where they squabble over the weekly sex schedule. Each one probably has her own building complex, attendants, and supporters. Team Olympias all the way. The elephant in the room, though, is that there is no chief wife like over in Egypt. No clear pecking order, which pretty much guarantees both fights and intense competition. These other women are a direct threat to her position, particularly if they're able to pop out an heir before she is. Myrtle's ability to keep up with the competition, to win friends and favors, negotiate alliances, and scare enemies into submission is going to be everything. If that's not all messy enough, she's also dealing with her husband's male lovers. She likely isn't batting a judgmental eye over these gentlemen. In Macedonia, such lovers are pretty much a non-issue, and it's not like they're going to give him any heirs. But bedfellows of the king expect rewards and some favors, and because they're often erotic rather than political relationships in nature, there's always the possibility of finding jilted lovers conspiring together behind columns. If there's one thing the ancient sources have to say about Myrtle, it's that her jealousy can grow to epic proportions. She is not a gal who likes to share, and she has to share with a whole gaggle of lovers and wives alike. Though she's far from home, she does have some Molossians around her. In fact, her brother, Alexander, comes to spend time at her new court. It's possible he and Philip even become lovers. Woo, that Philip too is busy. So my brother's sleeping with my husband. I imagine her saying, Try not to be a prude about it. It does have positive ramifications for her family, though. Philip will eventually do brother Alexander a solid by getting rid of their creepy uncle Erebus, installing Alexander on the throne instead. At some point in all this, she picks up the name she's most famously known by, Olympias. One version of how she gets it is that she takes it on in celebration of her husband's victory at the Olympic Games, where his chariot team wins a big race. But it's just as likely she gets it as part of a Macedonian festival in honor of Zeus. Given the claims she'll later make about her special friendship with the god of lightning, this seems fitting. So we're going to call her Olympias from here on in. Amidst all the competition and poison's stabby fun time, the number one thing she's concerned about is begetting an heir as quickly as possible, which she and Phil get right down to doing. (laughs) 
There are many tales and omens surrounding their first night between the sheets together. On the night before they were to be locked into the bridal chamber together, says Plutarch, the bride had a dream in which, following a clap of thunder, her womb was struck by a thunderbolt. This started a vigorous fire, which then burst into flames and spread all over the place before dying down. Not one to be outdone, Philip also has a dream. In it, he was pressing a seal on his wife's womb, and that the emblem on the seal was the figure of a lion. In other words, all signs point to the product of this union being a big effing deal. Philip is away when his son is born on July 20th, 356, but he's overjoyed when he hears the news. That very same day, his horse won at the Olympics and he won a battle against the Illyrians, which probably means his tiny son is going to be invincible. But when Olympias looks down at her son in her arms, she understands that greatness needs guidance. So she makes herself a promise. She will do anything to make sure he becomes the next king of Macedonia. No, I'm going to make sure he conquers the world. And that means weeding out some of the competition. One of the young throne hopefuls is Alexander's half-brother, Philip Aridaeus, born to Philina and a little older than Alexander. Wouldn't it just be tragic? She muses, slowly twirling her wine glass. If young Aridaeus was to suffer some kind of untimely accident. And indeed something does seem to happen to him. Plutarch doesn't mince words when it comes to his opinion on the matter. His mind became ruined when he was poisoned by Olympias. We have no proof that this is Olympias's handiwork. It's possible that Aridaeus always had some mental deficiencies that didn't make themselves known until he got older. But that's not to say that Olympias isn't clapping her hands over it. She gives Philip one more child, a daughter named Cleopatra. Because as we'll cover when we talk about Egyptian pharaoh Cleopatra VII, it is indeed a Macedonian name. Olympias will grow to be close with both daughter and son, their best cheerleader, vicious protector, and most overbearing boss. We don't know a whole lot about Olympias's relationship with her husband. Do they see each other as equal partners? Unlikely. Do they even like each other? It's impossible to say. Most sources say their relationship is all bonfires and thunderstorms, hot one minute and epic downpour the next. And there's a pretty juicy rumor, almost certainly false, that explains why they never have more than two children. It involves religious ritual and many snakes. As we've discussed before, religion sits firmly in an ancient Greek woman's wheelhouse, and it can give her power, respect, influence, and freedom. Inside the household, women are in charge of many religious rituals, particularly when it comes to handling the dead. They get out in public to go to all-lady religious festivals and sometimes serve as priestesses, a position that affords them more power than almost anything else. For those with money, they often travel to religious centers to make offerings, and their families praise them for the act. For royal women, being involved in public religious ritual gives them an in on some aspects of politics. Offering patronage to a certain cult or denying it can be a way to influence issues and relations outside of the religious sphere. In Macedonia, some of the most popular cults belong to Dionysus, that wild god of wine, revelry, and drama. 
There are also cults to Zeus, the Muses, the great gods we saw in Samothrace, and Heracles, who Philip's family says they're descended from. But Olympias is team Dionysus all the way. We don't know a lot about what goes on in this mysterious cult in terms of ritual, but we do know Olympias is never shy to use her participation in religious activities as a way to make a name for herself, which she does with some slithery reptiles. Plutarch tells us that she brought some exotic magic practices with her from Molossia, including a gift for snake handling during religious rites. Olympias, who more than other women strove after these inspirations and carried out these frenzies more barbarically, introduced to the celebrating groups great tame serpents who, often raising their heads from the ivy wreaths and sacred baskets or twining around the wands and garlands of the women, astonished or terrified the men. The way old Plutarch tells it, she's charming snakes on the regular. In fact, he asserts, it's her affinity for snakes that chases Philip out of her bed. One night, he arrives in their bedchamber to find her sleeping with some of her slithery companions. And because he's A, freaked out because, B, fearful one of the snakes is a god in animal form, he decides it's time to vacate the premises. Does this snakes in the bed claim have any merit? Given that our source, Plutarch, quite obviously loathes Olympias, maybe not. Plus, who wants to sleep with snakes? <laughs> but that doesn't mean her connection with snakes isn't accurate. They're often used in ritual, where they're sometimes meant to represent a phallus. I like to imagine a python twined around each arm as she contemplates her next power play. Olympias the witch and the snake charmer. There are worse things to be known for. Alexander's childhood is in many ways similar to his father's. At least until the age of six, he lives in close quarters with Olympias. Between her and his nurse, he's spoiled within an inch of his life. Later, he has stricter tutors to teach him. The first is Leonidas from Molossia, who instructs him in fighting and hunting. A later tutor, and the most famous, is Aristotle. The great philosopher teaches him ethics, biology, zoology, math, literature. Just like his mother, Alex pours over the Iliad, filling himself to the brim with the stories of his ancestors. He'll later take the annotated copy Aristotle gives him on campaign with him, keeping it and a dagger under his pillow while he sleeps, as you do. He has his own posse of royal youths, all men from highborn families dedicated to protect and serve him. And no doubt he's spending some time with his sisters, too. Cleopatra, Kinane, and Thessalonike. Hopefully they're whacking him with their practice swords now and then. Alex grows up with some interest in women, more interest in men, and the most interest in power. But his sexual preferences do cause some anxiety. As Diodorus has it, He scorned sensual pleasures to such an extent that his mother was anxious lest he be unable to beget offspring. So apparently, she and Philip bring in a high-class Hetera to tempt him. Always, he stays especially close to his mother. It's likely he's much closer to her than to Philip. Dear old dad's away a lot on campaign, taking Macedonia's ragtag army and turning them into fighting machines. He's stabbing foreigners with a Sarissa, a very long lance he introduced to his army, and subduing troublemakers down in southern Greece. It may be easy to revere him, but it's hard to really love a dad you don't know. But it's also because Olympias is his number one fan and supporter. 
If he doesn't triumph, then neither does she, and he knows it. Plus, in a court filled with intrigue, competition, and suspicion, he needs a cutthroat strategist to keep the path clear. Olympias is the ultimate momager, always shaping his image and working to ensure he gets his due. Maybe that's why, later in life, he makes such a big deal of calling himself an Eacid instead of an Argiad like his father. Olympias tells him early and often that he's descended from a slew of heroes, and that he should be proud of that heritage. She gives him the confidence and inflated ego he'll need to make it to the top. It seems as if, even from a young age, Alexander considers himself the son of a god. There's a story, most probably repeated and hammered home by his mother, that on the night of his conception, Zeus himself appeared in Olympias's bed. And when Zeus comes calling, you don't send him packing, know what I'm saying? He's still Philip's son, of course, but he's also the son of the number one god up on Olympus. If Olympias is the one who comes up with this story, either because she wants Alex to believe it or she actually does, it's brilliant. Though it's also dangerous, as it suggests she cheated on Philip. Not a thing Greek men take lightly. Maybe if it's with a god, it doesn't count? She may not start the story herself, and we don't know when it actually takes root. But I can imagine she'll be quick to cement it. To teach her son that he is destined to be a man of great and godly worth. By age 16, when Papa Philip marches off to Asia, he leaves his son to act as regent on his behalf. This is a big deal, as it shows that he's the chosen successor and gives Alex the chance to prove he's earned it. When tribes along the border revolt, it's up to him to suit up and take his troops out to defeat them. He drives them right out, then names the land they used to occupy Alexandropolis. He will name many a city after himself in just a few short years. Not shy, our Alexander. When Dad gets home, he's thrilled with his teenage conqueror. Olympias has to be thrilled as well. After more than a decade of careful scheming, things are turning up roses for the prince's mother, who finds herself experiencing quite a lot of reflected glory. But she can't ever rest easy in this court of nightmares. She must always be attuned to her husband's moods and whims, always looking out for a change in his favor. We can't know for sure how she feels about her husband by this point, but the rumor mill has it that things have definitely soured between them. Ancient sources describe her as vindictive and jealous of Philip's many wives and lovers. Or maybe she's just a woman with naked ambition who's not interested in pretending to be anything else. The drama ratchets up a notch in 337 when Philip decides to marry again. This time, he's marrying a Macedonian girl named Cleopatra, the niece of a guy named Attalus. You'll read a lot of things about this particular moment. That some members of the court are whispering in Philip's ear, saying that his son Alexander is only half Macedonian and wouldn't it be better to have a full-blooded heir? Some suggest he divorces Olympias to marry Cleopatra, who he apparently falls in love with hard. But knowing what we know about our cast of characters, none of that makes much practical sense. Olympias must have known that other brides were always in the offing, and her son is older and strong enough to deal with any heirs that come after him. 
But a new bride is likely to shake things up, causing a healthy dose of uncertainty. Olympias may well have felt slighted by the many implications embedded in his decision to marry again, jealous and angry about what it might mean for her son. But it's at the all-male wedding after banquet that things really go sideways. Copious wine and fragile egos spell trouble every time. Alex has already got to be gripping his wine glass, trying to ignore the veiled comments about his not being a full Macedonian stock. And then, Plutarch tells us, Attalus makes a loud and quite pointed comment. He called on the Macedonians to pray to the gods for a legitimate heir to the throne. Oh, damn. And the hot-headed Alexander is not down for it. Apparently, he jumps up and throws a drink in Attalus's face. In that moment, Papa Philip doesn't just fail to defend his son. He actually rises drunkenly from his seat and points his sword at Alexander. This betrayal cuts Alex deeply, offending him so much that mother and son pack their bags and exile themselves to Molossia. If they don't want us, we'll take our godly talents somewhere else. They have reason to go. First, because their pride is hurt by Philip's actions, and this little family does not suffer its reputation to be damaged. This turn of events may also make them nervous about Philip's intentions. Is he really going to leave the throne to Alexander, as his actions up to this point seem to promise? Or is he running some other kind of game behind the scenes? Either way, this whole affair leaves a permanent stamp on Olympias and Alex's psyches. Never again will they trust quite so easily. Never will they suffer someone to threaten their power or publicly call it into question. Alexander trots off to Illyria, the seat of his enemy, probably to piss Philip off. Meanwhile, Olympia stays in Molossia with her brother, King Alexander, and probably tries to persuade him to march on Macedonia. Back at court, nursing a wicked hangover, Philip's starting to see the error in his ways. If they had phones to text with, I imagine this married couple's conversation going a little bit like this. Hey, look, I know you and I have our issues, but you've got to admit that whole snakes in the bed thing was a little much. <sighs> Gods, you're boring. Anyway, I didn't mean for things to get so out of hand. I I'd had like three jugs of wine, all right? I don't even really remember it. Well, I do, Philip. I remember. And I'm not likely to forget. Wine emoji, fire emoji, sword emoji, skull emoji. It dawns on him that he's chased away his only truly good heir and that he needs to make a public apology. That he does, and Alex and Olympias are both invited back to court. As we know, Philip feels that all hurts can be soothed by a marriage alliance, so in the summer of 337, he's like, All right. Hear me out on this. How about we marry our daughter to your brother? Huh? Just some uncle-niece loving to tie together two countries? Everybody wins. In our century, this is not the solution we'd probably be keen on, and Olympias probably isn't either. Her daughter might be becoming queen of her home country, but this whole thing robs her of her brother's support. So she stays in Molossia, not so quietly sulking, and perhaps doing a spot of scheming on the side. In 336, Alex is ushered back into the fold, and Philip too goes full-on over the top with his wedding, turning it into a major religious celebration with parades and processions and probably glitter floating in all the fountains. At every event, he makes sure to walk with brother-in-law Alex of Molossia on one side and Alexander his son on the other, slapping them on the back to show how much they all love each other. 
But behind the scenes, things are a whole lot murkier. Alexander and Olympias get wind that Pixadarus, a governor from Caria, is trying to make an alliance with Macedonia by marrying his daughter off to Alex's half-brother, Philip Eridaeus. Olympias and Alex's royal dudes are very worried about this particular maneuver and convince Alex it means that Philip is going to leave the kingship to Eridaeus. So Alexander makes a bold move. He writes to Pixadarus and says that he'll marry his daughter instead. When Philip hears about it, he imprisons the agent Alexander sent with the message, publicly yells at his son, and sends his royal dudes into exile. King Philip just lost an ally, and Alexander lost a whole lot of support at the Macedonian court. Whoops. But one thing is clear from the Pixadarus incident, as badly as it went, that Alex trusts his mother's advice and is suspicious of his father and that they're probably both nursing some hurt feelings and frustration. But still, we've got a marriage to celebrate. It's all flowers and toasting. Until someone gets stabbed. Here's where Philip's tendency to take too many male lovers comes back to haunt him. A hot young Macedonian thing named Pausanias gets into a fight with another of Philip's side pieces. When Attalus and Phil's new wife Cleopatra, who are friends with lover number two, find out, they send a group of men to sexually assault Pausanias. Angry and probably pretty traumatized, he goes to Philip demanding vengeance. But fearing Attalus's wrath, the king does nothing, leaving Pausanias with his honor on the line and a whole lot of pent-up anger. Philip plans some public games in a theater at daybreak. He pimp walks into the stadium, looking fly in a white coat, with the two Alexes on either side of him. He waves off his guards and listens to the crowd chant his name. Just at that moment, Pausanias runs out and stabs Philip in front of everyone. R.I.P. Philip II. As the crowd descends into chaos, Pausanias makes a break for it, to a spot where several horses are conveniently tethered and waiting. But then he trips, giving the guards the time they need to catch up with him and stab him to death. Almost immediately, the whispers start circling. It may have been Pausanias who wielded the knife, but it was Olympias and Alexander who pushed him to it. But mostly Olympias, because she's a snake woman meddler with too loud a mouth. As Plutarch says, Most of the blame attached itself to Olympias, on the grounds that she had encouraged the young man in his anger and incited him to do the deed. Ah, ancient misogyny. Plutarch makes sure to strengthen this claim by saying that it's Philip's marriages and love affairs that create all the drama, but only because it allows the royal women to step in and contaminate the kingdom. Olympias, he says, makes the whole thing worse because she's difficult and jealous, and she manipulates her son to violence. I'm with you on blaming Philip here, Plutarch, but the rest? Maybe it's time for your nap. We don't know if Olympias and Alex are involved. There are arguments for why they wouldn't be. A public assassination was always bound to bring suspicion down on them. There are way more discreet ways they could have offed him, and Olympias is a queen of subterfuge. And there wasn't any immediate need to kill him. Tensions aside, Alex was first in line for the throne, and this move wasn't going to win him any friends at court. But there are those several tethered horses left there like several someones might need to make a break for it. And we can't deny that mother and son both benefit from having the throne suddenly empty. We can't know how Olympias feels when she finds out her husband's been murdered. Is she sad, triumphant, 
or just relieved that her son is king at last. As mother of the new king, Olympias is about to wield more power and influence than ever, and that's a pretty powerful vintage. But first, she and her son have to cement their position in a court full of, as Plutarch puts it, Great jealousies, terrible hatred, and danger everywhere. With young Alexander on his tenuous throne and his mother perched just beside him, we'll leave the rest of their story for next time. Get ready for epic conquest, traveling romance, way more intrigue, women wielding swords, and a battle for the throne that pits many ladies against each other. How many of Alexander's women will survive it? We'll find out. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you dig the Explorers, tell a friend, leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, or spread the word however you can. It really does make a world of difference. You can also support the show by becoming a patron, which gives you access to sneak peeks and exclusive bonus episodes. For show notes, including a list of my research sources, a transcript, images, and more, head on over to my website, theexploresspodcast.com. Speaking of pictures, check me out on Instagram. I think you'll find my Insta game is pretty strong. You can also find me on Twitter at the Explores Pod or Facebook at the Explores Podcast. Some of the drama-filled music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of Kai Engel and Kevin McLeod, whose work you can find through links in the show notes. A special thanks to the following podcast legends who kindly contributed their vocal stylings. Allison, who plays our Olympias, whose podcast 10K Dollar Day takes you on dreamy vacations around the world without ever leaving your couch. Sean, our Plutarch, who reads you stories on his podcast, Stories of Your and Yours, in the most soothing voice you'll ever hear. And Ryan, whose podcast, The History of Ancient Greece, dives deep into that ancient world and is where you should start if you want more ancient Greece in your life. Their podcasts are some of my very favorites, so check them out. You'll find links to their work in the show notes. Thanks also to the kind friends and family who never fail to delight me with their voiceovers. Philip Chevalier, who played our Philip of Macedon, John Armstrong, and Paul Gablonski. Thanks as always to Paul Gablonski, aka Mr. Explores, for my theme music and logo, and all the amazing pieces of art we've been collaborating on this season. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.